You're listening to the B Fox and B Frank show. Monday night, there was a death of hope, despair flooding over the entire country, and Gonzaga is not the national champion. Yeah, uh, you said it as, as simply as possible, as eloquently as you could. I, the entire time, I could just only imagine what you were going through the roller coaster of emotion because, yeah. It, it is what I would compare to sitting at the DMV because in the end, there was almost a feeling that no matter how much Gonzaga did, that the foul trouble was just going to be their, the death of them. And it, I mean, it obviously ended up happening is they couldn't pull it out, but there were, there were missed opportunities by, I, th- I would say both teams, a bevy of them to really take advantage and pull away. And no one could. Yeah. It, it boggled my mind, honestly. Like, obviously, the the game was not of very good quality. Um, the players had to do with that, and a lot of it had to do with how the game was being refereed, too. But I was I was astounded at how many people online were saying, like, this is the worst national championship game ever, forgetting clearly, yeah. 2011 existed when Butler shot three for 31 on twos. Yep. In a national championship game. Um, it was a collective movement as the country to just put it behind us and forget it even happened. Yeah, and that's fine. I I like to do that as well. Um, but back to this, I mean, it was it was so very ugly. And, and even with a, a big first half by, by Josh Perkins, Gonzaga getting out to as big as a seven-point lead, never really felt like they were – too much in control, and a lot of that was because the fouls kept piling up for the big men. And Gonzaga is a deep team in the front court. They have four really good bigs, uh, three of them seven foot and above. But yep. rotations were obviously screwed up because of that. Um, I mean, Karnowski's overall ineffectiveness on the night, he just could not seem to finish around the rim. Um, and, I mean, Collins never could get into a groove. And, I mean, he, he was really the, the best front court player they have, and he wasn't exactly. able to stay on the court because of some iffy foul calls. So that kind of affected a lot of other things, too. Right. You said it perfectly. He couldn't get in a groove, A, because of the foul calls and then just the shuffling of the rotations. But he was still, I would say, by and far their best big man in that entire game. Karnowski had, it felt like a thousand looks at the rim and just could, either couldn't finish or ended up trying to pass and turning it over. Tilly needs work still. He'll be good, but he just wasn't ready for that moment, and he definitely could not match up with North Carolina's bigs. Yeah, and he he's a freshman. It's okay, Collins. We'll see if he returns. He was really the the only guy in the Final Four who could potentially be a one-and-done um, the first rounder. He's being projected by a lot of analysts. If he were to decide to go, if he doesn't, Gonzaga is pretty well situated to be a top 10 team, um, assuming everyone else who can return does. But yeah, in this game, you, you saw how dominant Collins can be against South Carolina. He went for 14, 11, and six blocks, still in very limited minutes. Like his, his per 40 minute numbers all year are off the charts. This is a guy averaging in double-figure scoring who plays something like 17 minutes a game. Um, so the 
the talent is obviously there. He has, you know, good range for his size and he's very smooth, but both teams, uh, especially out of the gate, it really seemed like they weren't used to playing against teams with similarly sized humans. And I think that was definitely a big adjustment for Collins. First couple of times he got it in the post, he just got swarmed and blocked by Kennedy Meeks. Um, and he really couldn't adjust to that over the course of the game because he just kept going in and out and yeah, never got in the flow of it. But it was it was very frustrating, obviously for me because Gonzaga lost, but also because we didn't we, we were kind of robbed of a real game between these two teams because I, I think a lot of guys on on both teams didn't really get to show what they were capable of because it was just so whistle happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the few guys that really got the ability or got the chance to show off his abilities was Justin Jackson. He had just an atrocious game. He, for after like his seventh missed three in the first half, I was shouting at the TV. I, I mean, I was cheering for Gonzaga, but I was like, why are you still shooting? Go to the lane, do something else. You've, you're a size mis- mismatch on whoever's guarding you. Why can't you just drive? Yeah, that was the thing that gave me confidence initially because the first half, all North Carolina was doing was hoisting threes. Part of that was because Gonzaga was playing very good defense, not allowing a lot of penetration or interior passing, but a lot of times it was just North Carolina settling. And if you're defense, you're going to take that all day. Because North Carolina is a very bad outside shooting team. You have a guy like Justin Jackson who is seen as – you know, some kind of flamethrower when in reality he's only shooting like 38% from three, but just comparatively so much better than everybody else. So if they're just going to stand out there and take heavily contested threes, then, I mean, Gonzaga would have been good, but followed three-point shooters a couple times. Things started to, to open up a little bit as guys played off. People started getting worn down by fouls, and then... You know, North Carolina has some pretty pretty good interior players. So would have been nice if they had just stuck out on the perimeter all game, but I think it was pretty easy for them to tell, for Roy to tell, that it wasn't a strategy that was going to get them a win. There are a few thoughts that I just had shoot through my head, and I'm trying to go one by one through them so I don't forget them all. But one of them was I forgot Theo Pinson was even on the court until like the final four minutes when he finally made an impact and did something. Uh, two, why, why did Gonzaga not just continue to go at the mismatch of Britt? He's so small compared to their guards and Matthews was literally just rising and shooting over the top of him anytime he had the chance. And he's one of the better three point shooters in the country. So I think going away from that hurt a bit, but at the same time, if you're Gonzaga, you're saying North Carolina's hoisting these shots. Like you said, we're playing really good defense. We're not getting killed on the glass, and we're still up. If we can get Karnowski or one of our bigs going, maybe we can run away with this. So I think that was part of the mindset there, but it just never happened. And then when in doubt, they just didn't go back to it. That was the thing, too. Gonzaga was controlling the glass, like you said. And to your point about Britt, I think Gonzaga did a, a pretty good job in the first half trying to attack that as much as possible with Williams, yeah. Josh, in the post. Um, but, I mean, Britt didn't really play as much over the rest of the course of the game. Obviously, that huge three from the corner of Matthews hit right over him. Um, but 
yeah, the the fact that Gonzago is really able to control the glass for the large majority of the game and still got the L is pretty nuts because that's how North Carolina's enforced their will over teams. Everything's got to come back to Indiana basketball. So uh, when when IU pulled off the win earlier this year, a big part of that was having OG and Jawan Morgan attack the glass and really neutralize everything North Carolina wants to do. Because the thing is, North Carolina, as we've established, not a good jump-shooting team, so a lot of their points come off of second chances, getting rebounds off those misses. So if you can take those away, which Gonzaga did really well to start the game, then North Carolina's not going to have a lot of success. But really coming out of halftime especially, but like that was a point of emphasis to really attack the offensive glass and that really changed the the structure of the game, kind of the, the trajectory of where it was going. Another thing, I mean I know we don't want to harp too much on the officiating, although it was probably <laughs> some of the worst it was probably some of the worst of the tournament and that's saying something this year because there were a multitude of bad calls. It seems like this was the tournament of misseeding and poor officiating all around. The NCAA just shame. I, I don't know what else to say. It should be shamed. But two plays in particular, obviously, I think you know the first one would be the Karnowski flagrant one, which was one of the most absurd calls in the history of basketball, I think. And the second one was the jump ball with about a minute and a half left where Kennedy Meeks was literally had a hand on the ground and a hand on the ball and nothing was called. So we'll, we'll dissect those one at a time. You can go at it whichever way you like. The the official could not have been closer to that. Honestly, like yes. I wasn't completely sure about that in real time. Obviously that got, I was shouting at the, the internet, but I mean like the, the ref literally could not have had a better vantage point. Like, as as close as my computer screen is to me right now, which is really helpful visual for the your the listeners out there because yeah. this is a podcast. Um, but like, come on, man, you got to make that call. The Karnowski thing was fucking ridiculous. Like, yeah, I get he he grabs him. There there probably could have been a foul called there in real time on Karnowski. Certainly not a flagrant, but. To call a foul on North Carolina and then go to the video monitor and then call a flagrant on the person who the personal was not called on is, I feel like, very much outside the rule book. And I noticed that a couple different times in the tournament, officials going to the monitor and trying to use it to kind of change what was called on the floor. Um I understand the last few minutes you can obviously go to the monitor and you know figure out who touched it last. That's fine. That's what it's there for. But if you make the call on the floor like that, like I, I feel like I don't think that's something that you can review. And the other thing that really stood out to me was Zach Collins' fourth foul. There were a couple throughout the game where I feel like Gonzaga just got penalized for being large and screening people, but the really egregious one for me was his fourth when he, he literally just was trying to post up and created initial contact and immediately a foul was called. And, I mean, Gonzaga never recovered because 
the fourth foul really at that point in the game, I think there were still like 13, 14 minutes left. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that really fucked everything up. And the other thing that bothered me about the officiating on the whole is all of the, well, actually people who wrote these columns about how, Oh no, the officiating, you know, don't blame them, blame the NCAA. They're just enforcing the rules in the rule book. No, they're fucking not because no, not even close. A huge, a huge emphasis and has been beaten into our minds. Almost every broadcast, I feel like, is the idea of verticality. And if you're a defender, you can go into the air as long as you stay straight up. But so many of the foul calls on big men going both ways were just guys driving into taller defenders who had their hands straight up, whether they went up or just stayed on the ground and they would be called for a foul. Like, you can't play defense any differently in that situation. Like, that's the best possible defense you can play. And that was, that was very frustrating. All of the, the people rushing to defend the officiating. But. And to be completely clear, uh, there were there were bad calls on both sides of the floor. It wasn't yeah. just yeah. you know heavily against Gonzaga, or heavily against North Carolina. There were it was, I mean, the whole second half. If you rewatched it, you could find the most ridiculous foul calls there were. It was all of a sudden first half we're letting them play. Second half, a touch foul is being whistled every second. And like you said, the the Collins foul was atrocious, and then. Later down the floor, he probably did foul yeah, that, on a uh, block dunk attempt. That was really dumb. And they don't call point. it. And it's, I mean, he was very fortunate for that. But at the same at the same time, like, let's see a little consistency, or at least if you're going to bitch about the rule book and, like, how, oh, we're just sticking to the rule book, like, do it. You know, call yeah. fouls when they're meant to be called and not every single time someone gets touched. But back to the Karnowski foul, I think that changed the game and lost it. And, even worse than the people saying that the official, like coming to the official's defense saying they're just playing by the rule book is the people who say that the flagrant one didn't make a difference because Barry missed both free throws. You have, you must have never watched the game of basketball before in your life because it's his fourth foul. Collins comes in a minute and a half later, he fouls out. And that's essentially the game because that's their best big man right there. Karnowski is effectively useless in that game. He can't he's they're taking away his defensive rights because all he can do is stand straight up. And despite the fact that he is, what, seven, one, three hundred pounds, just a tree, you're still going to be able to score around him if he doesn't have, you know, his ability to at least jump straight up. So they took it away from him completely. And then, I mean, that that was the turning point in the game. Yeah, that was. It's frustrating all around. Uh, very, very bad way for Karnowski to end his career as the winningest NCAA player of all time. Uh, not, not a good send off, you know, because of his free throws. He still nearly ended up with a double double anyway. But again, I think he more than most, or more than just about everybody, really struggled playing someone that was basically his size um yeah. just just like very uncomfortable the entire game i mean and it was a great matchup between him and meeks it was fun to watch while they let it happen and both guys weren't getting whistled for the most ridiculous things but i mean i it, it was essentially as if halftime came around and the officials were like shit we're at the university of phoenix stadium where seventy thousand people are here for the zebras so let's let's make it worth their while 
It's true. That's, that's what the people come out to see every, every always. morning. Always. Uh, yeah, so that sucked. Uh, but kind of kind of bright spot, it helped me from winning my office pool, where my bracket name is in reference to how long Rick Pitino lasts. So I was very One glad round. that I didn't have to, to own up to that. No, I did. I told I told the guy who got in uh, third place today because I was lamenting how I should have won the bracket pool, and he like fucking died. So I was I was glad that didn't have to own up to that. Though free money would have been nice. Little locker room talk at the office. Got to love yeah, it. Yeah, I mean that's that's what it's there for. We do have a locker room in the office. There you go. So it's it's meant to that be. Would have been perfect. Yeah, but uh. See what else happened. Friday night stuff happened. Uh, well, a thing happened, really, and then I guess more stuff happened Sunday, but super anticlimactic. UConn women, um, I, I think without argument, the most dominant force in the sports world right now, um, lost, which was nuts. It was randomly on at the the bar I was in attendance of, so yes. that was. The first time I've been been yelling at the TV for a women's basketball game just because I don't watch them out often. But Mississippi State shocking UConn, ending the 111 game winning streak on a buzzer beater, no less. So definitely not the end of an era, but no, huge it's... huge upset for this season that they didn't even take advantage of because they lost in the final. But pretty. Pretty massive upset. One of, I would say, probably the biggest since the year 2000. That could be a bit of an overstatement, but that, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head if there are any more. But a fun fact is UConn women have not won an overtime game since 2004. How many have they played? Like two? I think five. It's wild. Obviously, they don't play often, but another stat from that win streak, I think, was 60, ga- 60 games in that 111-game win streak. They won by 40 points or more. See, that that is that's why I would not expect them to play many overtime games. Exactly. I feel like every time you see like a, an update for women's basketball, it's UConn's up 77-14 to 14 at half or something ridiculous like yeah. that. Oh, but, yeah, it'll always be like, Oh, look how Temple's up 10 to 2 early on UConn. We'll be like, <laughs> oh, third quarter, it is now 80 to 20. So that, yep. That's how it happened. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't know the game was even on, to be honest with you. I usually fill out a women's bracket every year for fun just to put UConn winning it and then see what place I get. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't do it this year, which was weird. Shocker, they lose. You know, I guess it's yeah, uh, the B Frank curse, but, um, but yeah, like it's it's sad that one of the most dominant teams that most of us will probably ever see gets literally no attention from anyone until they lose. I mean, certainly true with us. It's the first it's, time it's we've talked about them. absolutely wild, but. That was a pretty cool game. Hell of a hell of a shot to win it too. The smallest chick on the floor, just a step back jumper from the free throw line. Yeah, some uh, some big time onions. 
<laughs> and it, of course, really it sets up funny. a damn SEC championship game. Yeah, but but South Carolina ends up winning. So that's that is that is extremely disheartening for Mississippi State because I'd that's rough. That's like miracle on ice losing in the gold medal game. Yeah, because people forget it wasn't the gold medal game. Yeah, people people do forget. Uh, but we can uh, as much fun as it was talking women's <laughs> basketball. Let's bounce back. Uh, Georgetown finally hired a coach. Not really who we expected until, I guess, late in the process. His name was floated around early. And then later on, once Mike Bray respectfully declined and Shaka Smart respectfully declined, because, of course, they would want to leave their two programs to go coach at Georgetown. But they bring back former great Patrick Ewing. This is the second Big East coach now that played for his school that is the head coach. The only difference between him and Chris Mullen at St. John's is that Patrick Ewing had actually coached before. He was an assistant coach in the NBA for a while, and a lot of people had him pegged for NBA head coaching jobs in the next year or two. And then Georgetown obviously opened up and he took it. I don't hate the move. I didn't like Chris Mullen to St. John's. I knew he was a hell of a player and very charismatic guy who can, you know, he has the pitch. I grew up in New York. You know, I played for New York. I understand how it works, blah, blah, blah. Ewing actually has some coaching experience, which is always key. You know, when you're hiring a coach, you want someone who's done it before because Chris Mullen at times has looked completely lost on the sideline, albeit he's getting better. But when you're at a program like Georgetown where they expect you to compete right away, it's kind of sink or swim. And I just don't know how good of a recruiter he can be. And this is a total side note that I read on Twitter, but the funniest thing is Georgetown wouldn't let him hire his son, Patrick Ewing Jr., because they have a nepotism clause. What's Patrick Ewing Jr. been doing all these years? Remember when he was at Indiana back in the day? Yeah. And then Georgetown as well. Um, yeah, my dad like completely freaked out when I told him that Ewing got hired because he wasn't aware that he was coaching in the NBA all these years. Um, <laughs> so literally thought they just hired him off the street. But I, I don't. I definitely don't hate it. I think when when Georgetown was really at its peak in the old. Big East with John Thompson on the sideline. They're always really known for having good to dominant big men. Obviously, Patrick Ewing was one of those, but outside of him as well. And I think he's done a pretty good job with you know player development in the NBA. That's obviously a huge part of the job in college because guys, when they come in, are usually, um, with few exceptions, not very close to the finished product that they're going to become. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, it'll be very crucial to see how he is at recruiting and also who he surrounds himself with, who might have more of a knack for recruiting. Lorenzo Romar is still out there. That's my guy. He's got to say I, that for every open job. I have hyped this dude so much and I'm so disappointed that he hasn't gotten hired anywhere yet. 
I almost want him and Tom Crean to go coach in like some smaller conference and just build these teams into powers and see what happens. Well, to be fair, I don't know if he's even actively searching. Right, right. I'm I'm not in touch with Lorenzo's people yeah, yet. I'm trying. It's okay. We'll we'll get there. Yes. Um, but I mean Big East equity is there to be gained, um or taken, certainly. Um a lot of opportunity for growth, certainly from where Georgetown was last season. You think nowhere to go but up. Um uh, so it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for for Ewing to kind of acclimate himself to the coaching side of the college game and how well he's able to to attract kids. Do you think the combination of himself and the Georgetown brand will, of course, attract some kids by itself? But to be honest, I don't know how much the Georgetown brand attracts by itself anymore. You know? Yeah, it's it's kind of a generational thing, and that's pretty much how the Big East has been. You know, you ask anyone our parents' age or a little older, you know, with a give or take of five to ten years, and you talk about the Big East, and like I say Seton Hall all the time, and they're like, oh, great basketball school, right? And I'm like, well, we hadn't made the tournament in 12 years before 2016, but yeah, great, great basketball school. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the same thing with, you know, St. People always remember St. John's. People always remember Providence. People always remember Georgetown back in the, you know, the eighties when the big East was King. And it was, it's kind of a generational thing now where all these younger kids are like, Oh, they're the team who played Florida Gulf coast in the tournament. Right. Yep. That's, that's almost what it is at this point, because I mean, obviously everyone's going to know Georgetown because it's a national brand, but it's not known for like the dominance or the glory that it used to be known. And going back to, you know, the big East itself, there's, there's a lot of room to move because Creighton tonight, just as we're recording this, just lost just, Justin Patton to the draft. He, declared and signed an agent Edmund Sumner has signed an agent so he's gone and that's two of the best players in the conference that are moving you've still got guys like Angel Delgado out there who will literally sink Seton Hall if he leaves so that's three teams that were in the tournament last year that could completely fall off the map if those three guys leave two of which already have so there's a lot of room to move and Georgetown has talent and they've been in these games last year so it, it's really going to come down to can Ewing salvage this freshman class. Tremont Waters has already requested his release from his scholarship. And, I mean, they, they got to see what they can do in terms of transfers and everything else. But there's still talent on the team. If he can be a good X's and O's guy in his first year and really, you know, get a system that the guys can buy into and play well with, there's no saying they can't be a top five team in the Big East. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is just player buy-in. I feel like this sort of coaching change usually re-energizes the general feelings around the program. A lot of times the things leading up to a coach getting fired is, you know, general apathy, whether from the players, fan base, or both. Um, so I think that if nothing else, Ewing will, will kind of help re-energize guys. And, and back to your point about the biggies, obviously Villanova is still going to be loaded. And Butler, right. despite their losses, has never really been a player-centric program. 
Um, they also have a really good recruiting class coming in anyway. Um, so they'll, I mean, they'll still be up there. But other than that, like, Georgetown still had a ton of talent last year, as we keep harping on, um, despite finishing close to the cellar in the Big East. So there's not necessarily any reason why he can't be successful right away um just based on the roster like he's not going to be limited with the personnel i mean it'll it'll more come down to like he said his actual coaching acumen the x's and o's and how he's able to take the talent he has and actually do something with it which his predecessor really struggled to do yeah, and it's it's almost like a golden situation for Georgetown because you really get to see what kind of coach you're getting right off the bat. Most guys come into a situation like this and need a rebuild and they need to rebrand the program with their style and things like that. And they need to bring, you know, two, three recruiting classes in before you start to see progress. But he's going to have talent there. He just needs to implement his system and then see how it works, you know, as he coaches on the fly. So... I mean, it's it's a pretty decent spot for both Patrick Ewing and Georgetown to be in, but at the same time, if it doesn't work, they are set back a big ways. Yeah, kind of the polar opposite of Chris Mullen at St. John's, because when exactly. he got there, the cupboard was completely bare, and we're still <laughs> kind of waiting uh, to see like exactly how good of the coach he is, because they're still on that slow rebuild of the program. Yeah, Yeah, and and they've been bit so bad by the transfer bug. He just cannot seem, for whatever reason, to keep guys there, whether it's they just don't like the losing or uh, whatever it is. But I could go on and on about the Big East. But we'll we'll move on. We, we, We spoke a little bit about players requesting releases from their commitments. There was one close to home that hurts our, uh, Illini friends as Tillman requests his release today on Instagram. He, you know, mentioned that he originally committed to play for John Gross. And now that he's not coached there anymore, he wants to reopen his recruitment. So he will keep Illinois as an option, but I am very, very, very heavily convinced that he's going to Missouri. Just kind of felt, that was weird to announce it on Instagram. I don't know if that's yeah. just made him out of touch with the hip kids these days, but it seemed like a very weird arena. Um, God only knows. But yeah, certainly certainly hurts Brad Underwood in Illinois. That would have been a huge piece, literally, uh, coming in for his first season. Um, one of maybe the best players they've signed out of high school in quite some time. Personally, I am strongly rooting for him to follow John Gross to Akron and just dominate the Mac. Yeah, um, but do what LeBron never did. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's very realistic though. Um, he said he is from East St. Louis, just yeah. like Quanso, so very well could end up at Missouri or, I mean, literally any number of high major schools. Is he is that talented, and I'm sure you will have. Plenty of suitors, um, but I, d- I don't know if it's necessarily because news is much more readily available these days or what, but it definitely seems like there's a lot more of a spike in players requesting releases when new coaches get hired. 
kind of add that into all of the graduate transfers we've been seeing in the last few years, transfers in general, and I mean players players are really trying to to figure out the best situation for them and sometimes it takes their entire college careers for them to actually figure that out. I feel like Canyon Barry to an extent would be an example of that. That really ended up in a great situation this year for Florida. Um in the only year that he could actually play there. But yeah, there with with the coaching carousel now pretty much over in, in all of the most of the notable jobs. Um you know, there's it's a lot more talent on the recruiting market, but yeah and coaches need to snap up quickly. Yeah, it's wild too, because this year it seems like more than any, more top recruits have stayed and haven't committed and just kind of waiting out all the coaching changes, all the NBA guys to leave to really see where the best spot is for them. So it's a much different feel. And it's obviously, I think it's going to be the future of what we see in college basketball until something changes, whether it be a change to the transfer rule or a change to the coaching. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the coaching uh, carousel or whether it's, you know, moving up the commitment date, but, there's, I mean, this is this is the future right now. You're going to see more and more of these top players, unless you know they're just in love with a school, not committing until you know the very end, where they can say, okay, he left Duke and he's coming back to Carolina. I want to go play with him at Carolina. So, I mean, I think this is going to be interesting to watch unfold. It'll actually give us, you know, something to talk about a little bit in the off season now, because this is probably one of the closest or quickest uh, closings of the carousel I've ever seen. It feels like it was over and done with in about three weeks. Yeah. I mean, there weren't really many marquee slots that needed to be filled. Like, uh, like he, Harping on incredulously, a couple of them were just kind of shoulder shrug promoting the assistant coach at yeah. a high major school, which I thought was kind of nuts. Considering we're looking at you, them, Cal. And considering one of them was an assistant coach at Stephen F. Austin like two years ago, um, but yeah. I mean that's, that's the way it is. Some some schools don't want to invest all of the resources and again basketball might not be the highest of priorities especially i think that applies well i don't know oklahoma state's still pretty basketball rabid but i was a little surprised that they didn't look a little outside the program yeah they're gonna have a damn good football team too next year big big mason rudolph guy yeah mike Gundy is a man no he's yes, no he longer is. 40 but you gave a perfect segue with basketball-centric schools because Wichita State is looking to move and join the American Athletic. There's going to be a vote on Friday by the AAC member schools whether or not they will allow the move. I don't see any way they say no. This is essentially their only chance of keeping UConn and keeping UConn happy which is, to me, outrageous because they've been maybe the fifth best program in that conference since its inception. 
you take out the fluke national championship run that they had because it was but a national championship. A fluke. Yeah. And I mean, it's the only reason Kevin Ollie still has a job. Yeah. Because he's been nothing short of terrible despite having tons of talent. And now there's a mass exodus going on there. But I love watching UConn spiral <laughs> out of control. They, This is going to be a decent basketball conference next year if they can keep or if they can bring in Wichita State because, I mean, you've got Cincinnati, SMU, who are both going to be very good again as long as Ojale comes back for SMU. I mean, that's a big if, but they've still got good players returning and a decent recruiting class. Cincinnati's always good with McCronin. Maybe UConn will do something. You never know. But it's not that bad of a conference anymore if you add a really good basketball team like Wichita State to it. Yeah, and UCF and Houston are on the rise, and you would think that programs like UConn and Memphis will elevate their levels of play, uh, be much better than they have been in recent years, especially last year when they were both pretty brutal. Um, and the problem with the, the American this past year was that it was a two-team conference, which is why, despite gaudy records, neither was really rewarded on the seed line in the tournament. They were both six seeds, um, SMU ultimately losing its first game. So... They made me look so bad. I mean, yeah, I had them in the Sweet 16. It's whatever. They were um, an Elite 8 team in my <laughs> mind. <laughs> I knew Duke was going down. They just could never put it together in March for whatever reason. Yes. You know, unless they have like Definitely. six one and duns. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Wichita is certainly going to help the overall conference strength of schedule for all the teams in it. And I mean, Missouri Valley would be very happy to see them go. We have, you know, the last several years, the two teams that have dominated the conference, Creighton and Wichita State, if they're both gone, then, I mean, it's pretty wide open. You, you could, I could potentially see a team like Northern Iowa just dominating. Um, but, I mean, last year they took a huge step back. And, I mean, I feel like without Wichita in the mix, it would, it's kind of be a crapshoot year in and year out, which I would assume every team in that conference would prefer much more than the current model. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, the Valley, as we know it, is in trouble in terms of national profile. They're quickly falling by the wayside if they lose their best team again. It leaves room, obviously, an opening, and there have been talks that Nebraska Omaha is a very highly sought after school for whatever reason. The Mavericks are one of the Man. top choices. Gotta fill that void of Nebraska schools. They don't have Creighton anymore. <laughs> and then the other one is Valpo, who I believe they've already offered membership to and turned down. So Valpo would be a good get for them in terms of basketball. Omaha, I just I don't know. It's a little bit of a mystery to me, but. I mean, this this is a now officially a conference that's wide open for essentially anyone to go after and, and win the bid. It's unfortunately, from here on out, probably only going to be a one-bid league for you know the foreseeable future. But if you're a team like Illinois State this year, you'd think if only they had left one year earlier, we probably could have gone undefeated, or, or not undefeated, but only had two losses and made the tournament. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're Valpo and Wichita State leads, I don't really see any reason to join the Valley because without right. Wichita State, you're probably already in a better conference. Um, I mean, Omaha, I would assume, be pretty open to the chance. Um, again, without Wichita, the Summit becomes considerably more comparable of the conference, but I th- still think Valley has a noticeable edge, and that would still be a pretty sizable step up for a program that's still fairly young as a, as a Division One school. Um, yeah. I mean, from a basketball perspective, they've already had a lot of success. They beat Iowa this year. They were very close to actually making the NCAA tournament um, before Mike Dom happened in the championship game of the Summit League, as he is wont to do. He's only a sophomore, folks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would, that would definitely make sense geographically and it would make sense for the basketball program, at least, um, the step up. We feel like most sports, the, the Valley is of a higher quality than the Summit League, but we'll have to see if Wichita actually ends up leaving first, I guess. Yeah, so Friday's the day. That's when I guess the vote is happening. I mean, this is all Twitter news, so you take it with, you know, take it as you will. But (laughs) if it's published on Twitter, it is absolute fact. Yeah. But uh, Friday's the day. I will be watching out for that very closely whilst the Masters is on. And that's that's pretty much my next few days is catching up on all the college basketball news, posting up my reactions at LetMeBeFrankBlog.com and then watching golf because I have to fill the void of college basketball because I feel so empty right now. Yeah, it, I mean, the, the summer is always nice because it is the summer and its niceness is very key to its identity, but there's no yes. college football or basketball, so that part definitely sucks especially since since i am a Sox fan and it will be a a long season it's already been super depressing and they've played one game but yeah barring any uh major news i think this is the end of uh i guess you can call it season one of the b fox and b frank show yeah we uh we learned a lot we almost got a gonzaga title in year one (laughs) would have just had to go out on top that had been the case but i guess we have a reason to come back now yeah we uh we much like all the people who thought they were going to be one and dunners had have not had the year we thought we would and you know are going to have to come back for another year now gotta gotta develop a few more skills we'll we'll come back bigger and better next year for sure absolutely and we'll always have coverage at let me be frank but Unless anything major happens, we'll uh, see you in football season.